Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We are this week in a uh, brand new sermon series that we're calling Surrender. And we're just coming out of three weeks uh, where Nick has led us through uh, sort of opening the window into a fasting journey. And he's going to be coming back up at the end to make sure you know that you're invited to join us on that journey through uh, the Lent season. But Lent is upon us, and it actually starts this Wednesday. And so um, what we're going to do today is sort of build a bridge between uh, fasting, this sort of abstaining from eating for certain purposes, and we're going to build that into a larger theme of surrender, which is what we're going to talk about every week all the way up until Easter. Now, I have to mention that this is our schedule got a little off, and so if you were here in the beginning of the year and you were tracking with our Word of God series, uh, we did, it was a four-week series, we did three weeks, and then I had the audacity to get pneumonia and then a kidney stone back to back. And so we didn't finish that series. And so if you were like, that kind of ended abruptly, didn't it? Uh, We actually recorded it this week. It's up online. You can go finish that there. Is the Bible really for me is the closing uh, volume of of what we did there. And so that's there for you. If you were enjoying that, you can go to YouTube. We have it posted there. You can share it with friends, whatever you want to do. But that's there. So I wanted to make sure I said that out loud. And then uh, today we jump into surrender. And as I said, Lent is coming. I don't know how many of you uh, are like me. I grew up Catholic which uh, has, Lent is a very, um, I don't know, religious season, right? And so as a high religion of Catholicism, there were a lot of rules built into Lent in my childhood. One of which was you couldn't eat meat on Friday, which is why there's fish fries on Friday all around the place. No eating meat on Friday, and somehow fish, an animal, (laughs) I don't know, it doesn't matter. But fish was allowed, but beef was somehow really not okay. And then the other thing is you would give something up. Everybody gave up something for Lent. And as a kid, you learned to be really clever with this. You would trick the system because people would ask, you know, Sister Angela in first grade, my first grade teacher, she would ask, what did you give up for Lent? And being clever, you know, you always come up with a trick and you say, I gave up Coke for Lent. And you're like, but I didn't give up Pepsi. And so that's kind of how Lent would work. It's just you give up things you don't even like. You're like asparagus and Brussels sprouts are out this year. I'm going to go without them. When I was seven, I gave up cigarettes. I did a great job. Um, so what we're trying to do with surrender is we're trying to reframe this idea. We're trying to get out of the idea of I gave something up out of a religious duty, and we're trying to get into a, a more biblical uh, standpoint of surrender. And what does it mean to live a life of surrender? So what we're going to do over the next seven-ish weeks is talk about your will and your wealth. A lot of W words coming. Um, your worship. What about your week? Uh, what do we do with these things? What does it look like to surrender these really practical things in our life? And, and can I even do that? Is that even something Jesus wants me to do? So today to set the table, what we're actually going to do is kind of a precursor. We're going to discuss the nature of life as we live it. And so the question I'm asking is, are you foundationally, are you living a transactional life or a relational life? Transactional life or relational life? Jesus points to a subtle divide. There's, there's transactional religion, and then there's transformational relationship. And so we're going to see how this plays out. Next week, we'll talk about what is the difference between authentic saving faith and this sort of fake religion. We're going to get there, but we have to start today with this idea between transaction and, and relationship. 
And Jesus is going to go in pretty hard on the Pharisees, who were the strict religious adherents of the day. So let's just get in with Jesus. Matthew 23, verse 1. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But don't do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make, <clears throat> they make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. So what is he saying? <clears throat> He's saying they love to be seen. The Pharisees are doing things not because it's the right thing to do, but because others will see them do it. In verses 8 through 22, he's going to call them hypocrites, and then he's going to call them hypocrites again, and then he's going to call them blind guides. And so we pick it up back in verse 23. We skipped a little bit. We keep going. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. You have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside, the inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence, blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then go outside, and that'll be clean too. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones, the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear as people, as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And he keeps going. He calls them hypocrites again. He calls them snakes, you brood of vipers. Jesus goes in hard. And it's sort of undermining the snuggly Jesus that, that we sort of like to paint him as sometimes. This like, well, OMG, guys, he's so gentle. Jesus holding the lamb. He's so sweet to people. And it turns out he's pretty fiercely serious about some other stuff, too. Like, it's why he's lion and lamb. It's why, you know, he, he's both. And if we're not careful, we paint Jesus as, as like a cartoon character of sweetness and mercy, and we forget that there's wrath. We forget that there's, there's a fierce defense of what's true and holy. So to the rule followers and the righteous actors who are performing for the sake of the show, and let me be honest— if you're in church in 2023 America, it's likely that this is you sometimes. It's me. That we are the religious people of the day, and if we're not careful, we fall into the Pharisee side of the camp, and we end up doing religion for the sake of religion, and that's not the point at all. He says, to those performing for the sake of the show, for those who, who love to be seen by others, for those who love positions and titles, for those who love to be seen as clean and beautiful, Jesus so much says it all reeks of death. And it's missing the point. And worse, if you're not careful, you're convincing others to miss the point too. You're leading them astray by inviting them into your dead religion. So we, often in this point of the story, we look at the Pharisees and we go, ugh, those Pharisees, glad I'm not like them. Those rule-following, do-gooding moralists. What they need, right, what they need they just need to be more authentic, like less show and more real, right? Keep it real, Pharisee. 
here's the story. We're going we're gonna to address a comment over correction. So this is like kind of not the point, but we're going to get to the point. Every generation, and we're going to see this, goes all the way back to first century. We're 21st century, 20 centuries, couple past. Every generation has this. Every generation has um, this movement within the movement, with movement within Christianity, where we see Pharisees, and authenticity becomes the antidote to the Pharisees' folly. Every generation has this thing where we think authenticity, like this gritty authenticity, that's the way to oppose the overly religious. Each generation thinks this is true. Each generation of Jesus' followers overcorrects into authenticity, or I would even say into like anti-refined, like, you know what, I'm going to keep this part because it kind of shows me to be legit. I'm true. I'm real. I'm not one of those religious people. I'm out of that. How do I stay relevant to the people? And so we, we, we get into authenticity, and if we are not careful, and I say this as graciously as I know how, if we're not careful, we're using the word authenticity to justify sin. And we do it a lot. Being cool with getting a little drunk and casually dropping F-words over dinner and maybe dipping our toes into casual sex culture, being okay with that because, you know what, got to stay relevant. Ah, you know, don't want to be a Pharisee. It's not authenticity, it's called sin. Which, if you're paying attention, you might go, that sounds like something a Pharisee would say, isn't it? Right? It's kind of circular. Which I would counsel you and, and, and push you this way. I'd say, Jesus doesn't hear gossip and obscenities flowing out of your mouth after your fifth drink and offer you a fist bump. Paul was addressing the first century church who was kind of struggling with this too. Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul tells the first century church, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger and wrath and malice and slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. So when you confess Jesus and you follow him, when you become a Jesus follower, when you have the Holy Spirit in you, the Bible teaches you that you have been made new. And yet so many believers are, are hesitant to be identified with the religious masses, so that being made new, we refuse to live in the newness that Jesus has made in us, and we try to live in the old but embrace the new. And you can't do that, that you become a disconnected human being, and you become a, hip, a hypocrite. Because I'm trying to embrace the new that Jesus says I am while staying relevant to the old so that people don't think I became one of those religious nuts. So the question becomes, if I want to stay relevant, if I want to be anti-religion, if I want to be about Jesus, like real, true, biblical Jesus, not about all this other nonsense, what do I do? Like, what's the proper rebellion against that hypocrisy? What's the proper rebellion against those who abuse righteousness or misuse holiness, those who are fake or pretentious or showy? What is the rebellion there? It isn't for you to forsake the desire to be righteous and holy. So recall then, to answer the question, how Jesus addresses their giving. He's talking to the Pharisees, and he talks about their giving. And he tells them, you, you give a tenth, a tithe, right? That's where we get tithing. You give a tenth of your mint and your dill. You give a tenth of your spices. You give a tenth of your wealth, and yet you forsake justice and mercy. And what is Jesus' advice to them? Stop giving to me and just go focus on mercy. Wrong. That's not what he said. 
He said, don't forsake the former, but go and do the latter. Do both. Jesus goes, do the right thing that I've instructed you to do. Follow the command and be obedient to what I've asked you to be obedient to. And love people in a real authentic way. But it isn't, it isn't one or the other. And we get so stuck in like, well, I don't want to be religious. And it ends up being a show anyway. Jesus doesn't say stop obeying God's law. He says law and love, outer and inner. And what I really think he's saying, if we can kind of translate it into our modern language, he's saying stop leveraging me for your status. Stop, stop leveraging me for status. When you make a big show of putting your, your vast resources into the, into the collection booth, into the black boxes on the wall, if you came up and you just waved around a bunch of money, you're like, guys, giving a bunch of money to the church. And you dunk it in there and people are like, well, that was weird. Also kind of great that he gave a lot of money. We would go, well, that's kind of like self-serving, isn't it? That's a status move. Similarly, kind of being like, I'm not like one of those people is its own sort of status move, isn't it? It's its own sort of status move. So the Pharisee and the authenticity-loving anti-Pharisee are doing the same thing, both leveraging behavior for status, either acting holy so as to gain the, the favor of those who are highly religious or acting authentic and worldly for personal gain from those who are kind of anti-the religious. So the same thing, practiced in different ways. Both are forms of transactional religion. And that's where we're going today. Both are forms of transactional religion. And this is what Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of here, for practicing transactional religion, dead, devoid of faith, transactional religion. So what's the indicator of this in them? And if we're, if we're willing to pay attention, what's the indicator of it in us? I just told you, I think they're leveraging and using their obedience to gain leverage in some other area. They're using obedience for leverage, for gain, for, for personal status growth. Transactional life is always seen in leverage. It's always trying to gain something. I can explain it this way. Transactional life is always seen in the leverage. Um, I have a 10-year-old. I love her very much. The world's greatest 10-year-old. I warned her if she was in here today, I was going to have to use her as an illustration. I'm a man of my word, my child. So one day, not too long ago, my wonderful, lovely 10-year-old, um, a little cheeky, just so you know, she's pretty clever, I say, can you clean your room? She says, absolutely, dot, dot, dot. Can we go get ice cream if I do? And I was profoundly offended by this. Why? Because what is, what, I'm asking her to do a thing out of love, right? And she's not dumb. I'm a softie. I bet we got ice cream eventually. And she realizes she can do this thing for me. She can complete this task, and it will gain her something on the other end. So what she does in the, in the meantime is she has turned her obedience, which is beautiful and holy and great, and cre creates love and relationship with her father. And she's turned it into currency that she can spend on something she actually really wants to do. And it's a subtle little shift, and it's because she's clever that she knew to do it. And if we're not careful, we're trying to be clever and cheeky with God, and we're going, well, I'll do this thing, but only if you bless me. And it doesn't always show up as ice cream, but you know what it is. You feel it when you're going through it. Acting out of self-interest is its own sort of thing. Maybe a better illustration is uh, date night. Some of you might squirm, but it's okay. Welcome to Covenant Church. 
Uh, parents of young children often uh, create date nights. You, you know, it's chaos in the home. Kids are a lot of work. It can be a, it can be a challenge. Life is, life is hard. Busy parents need space, right? Busy parents need space to create relational intimacy, some space to be adult, to have a real conversation without somebody interrupting, to really connect. And so parents will hire a babysitter and they will go have dinner somewhere and just decompress. Now, sometimes, earmuffs, sometimes it leads to healthy physical intimacy as well, okay? We know where we're going. I would call it maybe a pleasant physical transaction. So out of the relational foundation that comes with going on date night, sometimes there's a pleasant physical transaction. You squirming yet? I see a lot of you are squirming. The, the, modern Christians don't squirm like old people used to squirm. Modern Christians squirm by smirking and looking to the side. And like 30% of you just did it. So a solid relational foundation with a healthy transactional outflow, that's a good thing. That's beautiful. That's reconnecting. It's all the things it was designed to create. It's acting in the interest of other. It's love for other. And sometimes it even benefits individual desires and, and needs as well. But it's not for that. That's the outflow. How does it get hijacked? So the difference between that and um, the other. What, is, what does it look like if it's transactional? It goes from being on a date to show love, reconnect love, give love, and it becomes a date, transactional, so my get love. It's a hold, I and mean, you know it when you feel it, though. You know when it shifts. When the husband says, if I take you to dinner, can we go get some ice cream? feels different, right? It changes the heart of it, right? It's a little icky, if you think about it. That's not what that's about. Why? Why does it feel off all of a sudden? What changes in it? It now has this transactional foundation, which is fundamentally rooted in self-interest. The other's interest is over, and the self-interest has begun. I am doing what I have to do in order to get the, the benefit I desire, which is plainly, speaking of sin, objectification of one's spouse. If you've never been guilty of this, I encourage you to find yourself in the confession booth with me. I've been guilty of this before. People say, how do you, you know, you struggle, Pastor? How do you struggle? I say, oh, I objectify my wife. And they're like, can you even do that? Like, watch me. I've done it. It's real, and it's sin. Living from a transactional foundation rather than a relational foundation will jack you up. It will mess up your life. And you will see it in every different area of your life because when transactive needs fade, relationship goes with it. You have a transactional relationship with Amazon and Verizon. You don't want friends who move on from you because they found a better deal elsewhere. Or your shipping speeds weren't fast enough. I got it elsewhere. You don't want a marriage that feels like a cell phone contract that you're waiting for the upgrade. You don't want that. Nobody wants that. But when we live a transactional life and we treat others transactionally, that is what we end up creating, is a world in which we are living transactional relationships. I got a relationship with a plumber. I call him when something is terribly wrong, unless I can find a better price from a different plumber, or unless he doesn't do the job I like him to do, in which case I will find a different plumber. I don't want to have a transactional relationship with people in my life that I love, much less with the God of the universe, in the way that I have one with the plumber. Because I can go on to other plumbers, but if I start going on to other spouses, gods, 
things get messy real quick. You don't want a God that can fit within your narrow consumptive parameters. We think we want that. We don't want that. We don't want a God who capitulates to culture so you can stay a happy customer of Christianity. This is the modern world. Is I create my rules and my framework and my belief system, and then I find a God who'll fit it. And if the God of the Bible no longer fits it, then I either take parts of the Bible out because they don't seem to fit my culture view anymore, or I just move on entirely. Well, he doesn't fit my view. This thing, this thing is outdated and archaic. It doesn't fit modern culture. Keep up, God. And we back out of God and we go on looking for a different consumptive experience. We build our own gods. That's a transactional response. The same way as if you don't like the prices at store number one, you start shopping at store number two. The produce at this grocery store wasn't up to par, so I get my produce over there instead. Deconstruction that you hear about in the Christian faith is often traced to transactional relationships with God and the church. The church let me down. I just told you I am a husband. I let my wife down all the time. All the time. I'm not saying it to be self-deprecating. I'm saying it to be honest with you. I let my family down all the time. I am flawed. I'm a man of sin, and God loves me anyway. He calls me a saint, and I'm working out the flesh in the course of my life, but I will let my family down over and over and over. And I thank God we have relationship based in something greater than transaction, because there might be a better deal out there for them somewhere. And we got to be real careful because when we begin to see the church or we begin to see God in a transactional light, we move on because the church hurt me. Because God didn't answer my prayer the way I wanted him to. So I'm going to find a different God that always says yes. What we long for, what we really long for, I mean, this is not like you're evil for being transactional. It's the world we live in. We're in a most consumptive culture in history. This is where we're kind of being shaped. What you long for is like a dim reflection of that. You long for transformational relationship. You long for something transcendent and wild and beautiful. That's what Jesus offers. Jesus offers covenant love, eternal promise rooted in relationship. That's the offer of Jesus, nothing less. An eternal promise rooted in relationship with him. And he says, in in order to follow him, in order to to find him, to to be a part of this, what's it going to cost me? He says, well, it's just self-denial. Okay, well, maybe I can think about that. So where is, the tr- where, where is it, though? Like, Jesus, where is the transformation? Where, do I, where does it happen? How do I see it? Where does that take place? Jesus goes, the transformation is in you. You follow me, and then you transform. It's on us. Paul says it to the church at, at, at the Galatians. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He says, I'm dead. The one I was is gone. The pre-Jesus version of me is dead. And the renewed version of me now exists. I've been crucified. My flesh has been crucified with him. And my job as a follower of Christ is to live in the renewed life. I have a responsibility to take on the new self that he has given me and live in Christ instead of in self. Transform from sinner to saint. Instead of being dead, I am now alive by relationship with Christ. And to be straight, this doesn't always lead to material gain. Jesus is about your flourishing. Don't mishear me. Jesus is about your flourishing, but this may not lead to material gain. You may be the most faithful person on earth and be destitute and suffering. He'll allow it if that's what you need. 
You say, well, that, uh, I got problems there. We'll talk about it next week. Narrow is the gate and few those who find it, Jesus says. We'll talk about why he says that. But life with God in relationship isn't lacking or meager, even if it's hard. It's not all sacrifice and no joy, although there might be a lot of sacrifice happening. God's path of transformational relationship always beats the short-term gratification of consumptive transactional religion. Always. Just requires you to stay in it long enough to find out. Maybe a good way to explain this is I, I got more than one girl. I got two girls. The other one's okay, too. I cannot imagine loving them anymore. I, don't, I wouldn't know what that might possibly feel like. So the question that you would ask if you look at the father's love for his children, the father's love for his children, I'm inviting you to be in transformative relationship with the creator of the universe, the father in heaven through Jesus the son. And many of us reject this because we're not sure it's going to get us anywhere. We're not sure it's going to gain us. It actually sounds like it could be hard. And so I would ask you, I'm a father of two children who I cannot imagine loving more. Which life will be better for them? The one where they leverage and manipulate me to get what they want, and they may get what they want, or the one where they lean into the fullness of relationship and watch how I will lay my life down to bless them in ways they've never dreamed of. Because I know which one my heart is for. The father's heart is to lay his life down and bless these children in ways they could never even have imagined. Their, their imagination is too small for my dreams for them. That's my heart for them. Now, they can short-circuit that and be transactive. They can decide that they would rather leverage and manipulate me, and I'm easily manipulated, trust me. They can get all the things they want. Which life is richer? Which life is fuller? Which life is better? God isn't calling us into the fullness of relationship to deprive us, but to bless us. God is calling us into the fullness of relationship to bless us, to overwhelm us with the goodness that is him. God wants you to flourish in the right relationship, and it means we have to give up our consumeristic tendencies to get a good deal. What's the ROI on that behavior you got there? Because I think you could probably switch it here and get a better deal out of this. That's not how this works. God wants you to give up those tendencies. Put on the new life. Jesus, what will it cost me? Jesus says it costs you your whole life. That's it. Just your life. Pick up your cross. Follow me. But he also says, once you taste and see the life I'm offering, Jesus says, once you taste and see the life that I offer, you'll never miss the fading satisfaction of the old transactional life again. You will not miss it. So how do we apply this to where we are in the season of our church? First, to fasting. We've invited you, and dozens upon dozens upon dozens of you have said, yeah, I want in on this. I'm going I'm to take this journey. I'm going to do the fasting journey whether it's juicing or once a week or twice a week, whatever that is. You can sign up if you're like, I didn't sign up for this. How do I do this? bgcovenant.org slash fasting. You can figure it out there. Nick will tell you more in a minute. How do you apply this transactional versus relational to fasting? If you're rooted in relationship, fasting is a beautiful, beautiful discipline. It's going to invite you into greater intimacy with your creator, connection with your savior, an aligned body and spirit. That's what I'm praying we find together. Transactionally, you go, I'm going to not eat today, and I hope that in not eating, God will do what I want God to do. That's leveraging. That, don't, that won't work. So if you're approaching fasting like that, I, got, I can tell you the end of the story. You're hungry, and it wasn't a lot of fun. And if you go in relationally, he's going to blow your socks off. you be like, I did not know that being hungry could lead me to that. 
So apply it that way first. Then in the weeks to come, we need to kind of keep this as a foundational layer. In the weeks to come, I'm going to challenge you to surrender things. Surrender your grip on your life itself eventually. Not so you can leverage God for a better life. Not so that thing you're struggling in right now will all of a sudden be easy. Not so you can feel like you're getting a good deal on good behavior or reward for being righteous or holy. Not so you can turn obedience into currency. I will not promise you money or fame, but I will promise you in the weeks to come is flourishing and fullness. The lavished love of a father who cannot even begin to describe his plans for you. And if you can live in that life, if you can find yourself wading into the deep waters of relationship, begin to find that you can live with a boldness and a confidence of someone who is in step with the Holy Spirit of God which to most modern Christians is like an idea or a concept we've never encountered. That Jesus said, I am leaving, but I'm leaving with you my very breath. And it will live in you and breathe through you. And if you are so willing to surrender to it, you will know a power of flourishing. You will know a life unlike any you've ever imagined. You can walk in the joy of God's presence, You can leave behind the wasteland and the constant chasing that comes with transactional relationship, transactional religion. And you can begin to step into the freedom of the joy of new life that Jesus offers, that transformational relationship in Jesus where you become new. So you can know what it means to to truly feel fullness. You can know what it means to be set apart. That's all holiness is. It just means set apart. You can know what it is to know true love because the Bible says that God is love and he's inviting you into that love. So our challenge today is to let go of transactional religion. See it where it is. Be honest with ourselves. Where are we? Where are we settling for that life? And then once we see it, to root that out and begin to embrace transformational, unconditional relationship with a God who loves you more than you can imagine. Let's pray. Lord, we are your children. And Father, my prayer is that we would uh, again find ourselves as kids in front of you. God, would you strip from us our adulthood, uh, strip of us our our self-sufficiency and our thinking that we have this thing figured out, remove from us our independence and our, our invulnerability. God, bring us back to being children in front of you that are needy. And then, God, help us to see the way we interact with not only you, but those around us. Are we prone to leveraging for status or gain? Are we prone to trying to turn uh, our life and our faith into currency for lesser things? Father, if that's us, my prayer is that we would quietly in our own seats, we would confess that now. We would find that place. You would give us that conviction in the great joy of your forgiveness. We would open our hands to you and let you know that that's us. Lord, you know that has been me. God, as we move forward, my prayer is that we would um, embrace you fully. We would embrace your invitation into relationship. We would find ourselves lost in your love, not for gain, but just for you. God, whisper 
into our spirit, whisper into our heart, let us know that you are present with us and that there is no greater place to be than in the midst of your love. So God, thank you for your word and its clarity, even when it seems difficult. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts to your presence in this place, that you would bring us along on the journey that we might know you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.